Well, good morning, everybody. I just want to say it's uh, a great joy to be here with you this morning, and what a big day it is. I feel like I've come on a cracking day. Unfortunately, I can't stay for your members' meetings, but what a highlight they are, right? We had our members' meeting last week, and it was a great joy. Uh, And I also just want to say that we really uh, love what God is doing here at Hertford Street. Uh, God is so good, isn't he? And it's wonderful just to see the work uh, of God among you. Uh, And it's a joy to be able to come and visit every so often and be part of what God is doing here. Why don't we just stop and uh, pray together and ask for God's help as we come to his word this morning. Father, we rejoice that right now that the Lord Jesus is king. Uh, He has defeated sin and death and he now rules and reigns. And so this morning as we come to your word, I pray that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit so that we would understand, uh, but in turn that we would be conformed by it. I do pray that as we come to this passage this morning, Father, that you would give us a joyful confidence because of everything that Jesus has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, I'm going to start this morning with a confession, and the confession is this. I am really not a fan of big theme park rides. I'm the kind of person that would front up with his mates to the theme park and pretend he's confident, you know, you're sitting in the queue for the giant drop or the Tower of Terror, and what you're doing is you're masking sheer terror that sits on the inside of your heart. And you're trying to pretend as though you're absolutely cool with everything that's going on. But then once you're buckled into the chair and everyone's eyes are facing forward, then you let out all the sheer terror on your face. Now, the reason that I hate these rides is that I have this sinking feeling in in every fibre of my being that something is going to go wrong. Here's the deal, when you're afraid that something is going to go wrong, there is no joy. You see the principle, if I do not have confidence in something, then I simply will not enjoy it. Now to prove this principle, one day I was at Dreamworld and to build confidence, I decided I would go on the roller coaster six times. I thought I'd take my fears head on. And here's the deal, by the sixth time, I was what you might call a Pentecostal roller coaster rider. I was able to put my hands in the air and enjoy this roller coaster ride. Why? Because I had gone on it five times previously and I now trusted it. And this is what's been going on. In this book of 1 John, I want you to go with me to 1 John chapter 1 and look at verse 4. There's a bit of call and response from the beginning of this letter to the end. In 1 John 1 verse 4, he says, And we are writing these things, why? So that our joy might be what? Complete. Now look at the verse that's on screen, the second verse of the passage we're in today, and he says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. Do you see what's going on? He started the letter and he said, look, I'm writing this letter to you so that 
you might know that you truly are the children of God. And now he comes to the end of the letter and he says, and because of everything Jesus has done, the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again to defeat our sins so that we might be restored in relationship with God, because of all of this, this is the confidence that we have. And as we walk through these final few verses, I want to suggest that what John is doing is that he's simply unpacking the audacious confidence that we have as the children of God. If you're a note taker, three points this morning. The first bit of audacious confidence that we have is that you and I can now make big requests of the creator of the universe. Read from verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. Isn't this astounding? Just, just stop and pause for a moment John is saying that if your trust is in the risen Lord Jesus, then you can make requests of the God of the universe. I think that when we've been Christians, perhaps for a little while, we forget how incredibly astounding this is. That you and I would be able to walk into the presence of holy God because of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, and make big requests of him. It's true in life that your confidence that someone will listen to you is based on the nature of the relationship you have with them. The closer the relationship, the more confident that you become. And John says you can ask anything according to his will. Now just stop and think about what's been going on in this letter. John has been addressing this fear that the false teachers are the ones who truly have fellowship with God and that those left in the church do not. But John emphatically replies and says that those who have trusted in the life, death, and resurrection with Jesus have such close fellowship with God that we can ask anything according to his will. Back in chapter 3, John says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called his children. Just personalize that verse for a moment. See what great love the Father has lavished on me. Insert your name in there. See what great love the Father has lavished on me that I should be called God's child. And it's true that children are the ones who make the most audacious requests, isn't it? A couple of months ago, I went in to check on our youngest daughter, Emily, who was crying. It's pretty rare. She's a good sleeper. I went in and I gave her a hug. 
I think Doug's had a hug of Emily before. And after she settled down, she looked into me. This is about one o'clock in the morning. And she said, Daddy, baby Chino with two marshmallows, please. Sitting there thinking, how audacious is this? But there was something within my heart that wanted to say, sure, Emily, no worries. I'll just go and turn on the coffee machine. And at one o'clock in the morning, I won't just make you a baby Chino, but with two marshmallows. You see, when you know that you are a beloved child, then big requests are the natural response. And here's the deal, you are a child of God if you trust the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says that you get to call the God of the universe your Abba Father. And it's important that we see that John doesn't say this is the confidence that super Christians have. Or this is the confidence of those who have been kicking spiritual goals this week. Or this is the confidence of those who have kept up with their Bible reading plan over the past month and have attended every church activity going on. No, the criteria to have this kind of access to the God of the universe is that your trust is in the death and resurrection of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. And I dare say that some of you are thinking about those words according to his will. Our problem with these verses is that we read them a little bit like a straitjacket. In other words, prayer is not really meaningful. It's more like a guessing game where we're simply trying to read the predetermined mind of God. What's the point of praying then, we say, if it's only according to the will of God? But this is such a cold view of the will of God, and it is deeply unbiblical. Theologians talk about the two wills of God. God's will of decree. There are some things which God has decreed with absolute certainty that will happen within salvation history. Things like the creation of the world, the coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. And this is so good for us as God's children because we know that we can absolutely bank on these things. How good is it that we know there is a day coming which God has decreed when Jesus will return? Is that good? Praise the Lord, it's good. But theologians then talk about God's will of command. There are so many things which God wills for his children, but which we are called to pursue as we submit our will to God's will. You see, John is not talking about playing a game of guess who with God as we pray. He's talking about us discovering that our Father is the fount of all goodness. And so as we grow in love for him, we also grow in love for that which God longs to give. God longs that you and I would know life to the full in Jesus. So we should ask for it. God longs that instead of restless and discontent lives that we would find 
perfect satisfaction in Him. So we should ask for it. God longs for marriages that are full of joy and delight instead of friction. So why don't you pray for it? God longs that we would grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So pray for it. There are so many things for which God wills for his children, but he calls for us to participate within this as we come to him in prayer. And then for the things that God has already decreed, what a blessing that he might use your prayers and mine in making that a reality. I'm going to give you a very poor illustration. You'll hear why in just a moment, but that's my precursor. My son, Sam, knows that his dad loves to kick the footy. He knows that I love going to the AFL and eating twisties when we're at the AFL. And so as Sam has grown up, I would like to think that he's, he's grown in love for what is good, right? All of those things are good. And so when Sam comes to me of an afternoon after I've come home from the office, and he says, Dad, do you want to kick the footy with me? You know that he's asking me something that he already knows that I long to do. When he says on a Saturday afternoon, do you want to watch the football with me and eat Coke? I eat Coke? You can't eat Coke, can you? You drink Coke and eat Twisties. He knows that he's asking something of me that I'm going to long to give him. And you see, this is the delight that we have as the children of God. That we would learn to love what he loves. That we would discover that he is so good. And as we discover that he is so good, we too begin to ask for the things which are not just good for God, but good for us. We can make big requests of our Heavenly Father. But then John goes on, and this is the the second aspect of the audacious confidence we have, and that is that we can make brave intercession on behalf of our brothers and sisters. And in verse 20, uh, in verse um, 16, sorry, to 17, what John is doing is he's really giving a concrete application of the types of prayers that maybe we can make to our God. Just read from verse 16 with me. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, as soon as we read these verses, we're distracted by this question, what is the sin that leads to death? As a pastor, I have had so many people come and say something like this to me. I'm worried that I've committed the unforgivable sin, or that I've committed this sin that John is speaking about here, the sin that leads to death. So what is this sin that leads to death? 
And I want to say this is a really good lesson on how we should read Scripture. The Reformers talk about the analogy of faith, which means that we should be people who are reading Scripture in light of Scripture. Whenever you have a big and troublesome question about something the Bible says, the Bible is always the best interpreter of the Bible. So let's do this in the context of this letter. Think about the context. The letter is written to people who are no longer trusting the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the first bit of information that's helpful. And then earlier in the letter, John has said that if you do trust in Jesus, you will be cleansed of how much unrighteousness? All of it. So when you put these two bits of information together to interpret this verse, the only conclusion that you can draw is that the sin that leads to death is the sin of not putting your trust in Jesus. Do you see that? He's saying, look, there is no point in praying that God will forgive someone who has not trusted in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only way that your sins can be forgiven. It's a little bit like praying that someone's thirst would be quenched apart from drinking water. It's completely nonsensical. Now that we've dealt with that issue, just come back to the force of verse 16. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, what should he do? Well, it doesn't say that they should go and gossip about it. He doesn't say if anyone sees a brother or sister in sin, they should feel an air of superiority because you are not trapped in the same sin. He doesn't say if you see a brother or sister in sin, you can move them down your spiritual leaderboard in the church. No, he says when you see a brother or sister in sin, you should do what? You should bravely intercede on their behalf. Maybe the question is, why is this a display of such audacious confidence? And I would suggest because it teaches us something about the nature of the community that are walking in the light with Jesus. For Christians to pray for one another in sin, it first means that we need to be able to see one another's sin. And for us to see one another's sin, we must be a family that are honestly walking in the light together. That is bold confidence. That I would know so much that my heavenly Father has forgiven me of my sin. That I too am prepared to be honest about the state of my heart and the reality of indwelling sin with my brothers and sisters. That they too might be able to pray for me. In 1 John chapter 1, John says, Those who are walking in the light are those who do not deny their sins, but rather confess it to Christ. The principle is that light comes when we walk in honesty, when we do not hide the state of our hearts and the sin that is warring in our souls. And I think that what John is doing here is he's making a broader point 
about the implications that this has for a church community. Think about it like this. When you come to Christ, you don't just walk into a private room where the light is switched on. No, when you come to Christ, you join a family of people that are together confessing their sins to Christ and seeking the help of one another to put it to death. You know, in the church, there are two things, if, you, if you're a Christian this morning, there are two things that you share in common with everyone else. The first is this, that we are all struggling with sin. I'm going to ask you to do something weird. I want you to look at the person next to you. Do it now. It feels a bit awkward. And now if you're brave, you can look at them and say, you are struggling with sin. Now here's the second thing we share in common. Jesus is our saviour. You can turn back and say that to the person you've just looked at. And I think that what John is saying is that because God has accepted us in Christ, we are a community of repentance and faith together. We can be completely honest with one another about the struggles that are warring within our souls. And instead of gossiping about the sin that others struggle with, instead of marking people down your spiritual ladder in the church, instead of being shocked and horrified that this person too is a sinner, what are we going to do? We're going to get on our knees and we're going to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We're walking in the light with Christ and we know that to walk increasingly in the light is to put our sin to death. And so when we see our brothers and sisters walking in sin, that is not walking in life. And what do I long for them? Well, I long that they would put that sin to death and increasingly walk in the fullness of life that is on offer in Christ. Just yesterday morning, I caught up with two young men who are struggling with sin. And then as the day progressed, we'd already confessed sin to one another as we were drinking coffee. And then throughout the day, I got a further two or three text messages confessing further sin and then asking that we would together pray. What confidence. I know of young women at Eastside who are meeting with older women to seek prayer and counsel as they struggle to grow in godliness. What confidence they have. I know of guys who have confessed deep struggle with lust and pornography and they now meet regularly to seek prayer and counsel. What confidence they have. And I think at this point, some of you are thinking, sure, but there's no way that I can share the sin that I'm struggling with. Isn't it amazing the way that we go into solicitor mode when we start to feel uncomfortable about the burden of Scripture? But just hear this clearly. Whenever we say to ourselves, there is no way I can share this sin that I'm struggling with, Satan is the one who is keeping you trapped in darkness. And the really 
bizarre thing is that as we stay trapped and silent in darkness, the Bible would say that it's like having rotting bones. But yet when we turn to Christ and we turn towards our brothers and sisters asking for prayer, it is the dawning of new light and new life. Listen to these words from Psalm 32. This is King David. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David's talking about his confession to his heavenly Father. But this principle that runs all the way throughout the Bible is that because we can confess our sins to our heavenly Father, we too can confess our sins and seek the prayer and the encouragement and the counsel of our brothers and sisters. The audacious confidence we have leads to us making big requests and brave intercession. And in these last few verses here, we see that it also leads to bold living. Look down at verse 18. John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and the eternal life. You see those repeated words, we know, we know, we know. The contrast that John is implying here is a contrast between those who are born of God and those who have gone out from the church. He's saying, we know the one and true God. He says that we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and the Son of God is the one who has given us understanding. You see, John couldn't be saying any more clearly that a life apart from Jesus is not just a bad idea, it is a cosmically pointless way to live your life. Just look at these contrasts that I've put on the screen here for us this morning. Not to be with Jesus is to be under the influence of the evil one. It is to be harmed, it is to be living a fake life that is full of lies and will ultimately lead to death. He's saying to his readers and to us this morning, you can be absolutely confident about the life that is lived in Jesus. If you are with him, you are protected by the Son of God. You are worshipping the real king. You know the truth. And this will ultimately lead to eternal life. 
And he says, if you know all of these things, then you can live boldly. I read a biography once about a man who was stuck in a labour camp. And his daily duty was to move boulders. Literally, this is what he did day after day. In the morning, he would move the boulders from one place to another. And then after lunch, he was told to move the same pile of boulders back to where he started. And John is saying to us this morning that this is the life of someone who is not in fellowship with the Son of God. He's saying you can have absolute confidence that if your trust is in the Lord Jesus, that you know what it truly means to live. And then in verse 18, he says, if this is the confidence that we have, then we do not keep on sinning. Now, we need to be very clear that John is not saying that a Christian will never, ever sin again. But what he is saying is that the life of a Christian is one of boldly putting sin to death because we know that Jesus is the true King. Because we know that Jesus is the one who is protecting us, that he is real and that in him we have the truth. And if we have the truth in Jesus, then we know that to go on sinning in our lives is utter deception. The Bible would say to us, behind every sin is a lie and behind every lie is the evil one who takes joy in stealing the delight that is on offer to the children of God. I would suggest that the confidence of the Christians that John was writing to had taken a beating. People had gone out from the church claiming that they had fellowship with God. And I wouldn't mind guessing that what was going on is that they're sitting there going, can we really boldly live for Jesus? Is it really worth putting our sin to death and living for Jesus if we are not absolutely confident that we have fellowship with God? And John finishes off his letter and he's reminding them that because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus died on the cross for their sins, because he is the one that gives them fellowship with God and that because they are with God, they now know truth. And so you and I can boldly live for him, knowing that whatever we do for him is absolutely worth it. You see, if you are battling with anger today, then keep going because Jesus is the truth. If you are struggling with contentment, then keep striving for contentment in Christ because Jesus is alive. If you are struggling with lust, then keep fighting with the help 
of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is so much better. If you are struggling with jealousy, don't give up because eternal life begins now. And then he finishes off in the final verse. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I've been reading through the book of Isaiah lately. And in the uh, second part of the book of Isaiah, there's this beautiful picture of idolatry. And Isaiah talks about idols carved from wood. And he says, do you know what? That wood is the very same wood that you burn and use to cook your food. That wood cannot tell you the future. That wood cannot save you. So why on earth would you bow down and give your life to worship those idols? And here I think John would say similarly. If we know the living God through his son, the Lord Jesus, then to worship an idol is breathtakingly stupid. It's cosmically silly. What is an idol? An idol is anything that dictates the priorities of our lives but cannot save you. Hear that again. An idol is anything that is dictating the priorities of our lives, but it cannot save you. John is saying that those who had left the church and had stopped trusting Jesus, well, now they're worshipping something fake, something that could never give their lives meaning, purpose, and joy. And in contrast to that, John says, go on and live your life boldly for Jesus. Know that as you confess your sins and as you put it to death, know that as you make sacrifices for Christ, letting him dictate the priorities and patterns of your life, that it will count for something real and eternal that it is the path to meaning and joy, that it is the result of true fellowship with the eternal God. What's the confidence, the audacious confidence that we have? It's the confidence that we can make big requests of Creator God. It's the confidence that we might bravely intercede on behalf of one another because we are a community that is walking in the light. It's the confidence that leads to bold living in this world because we have found the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. John says, I've written this to you to make your joy complete. And as we come to a close this morning, I just want to briefly share a story that made me both deeply thankful but very sad at the same time. 
I have a good non-Christian friend who just recently came over to our house and he said, as men do, I just wanted to come and see the Renault work going on in your house. But very clearly it became obvious that he didn't care about the Renault work going on. He came to confess, certainly not his words, but to share a deep discontentment in his life. He has a fantastic job. He has a lovely wife. He has a number of children. But he said that nothing makes sense. I'm struggling in my marriage. I feel like I'm just going through the motions of life. And it simply does not make sense. Why was I deeply thankful to God? Because it was a reminder to me of the blessing of fellowship with the true God. There are so many people in this world who will try to make you feel like you're crazy for being a Christian. And as this friend of mine was speaking, there was something in my heart that was so thankful to God that I know who I am. I know what this life is about. And while I'm struggling my way along to follow the Lord Jesus, I know the way, the truth, and the life. But why was I deeply sad? Because he was a man standing before me who desperately needs Jesus. If you know that you've trusted the Lord Jesus today, then you can joyfully and passionately live for him. John would say you can have absolute confidence that you're in fellowship with the God of the universe. But maybe this morning, you're not confident that you've trusted Jesus. And if this is you, well, you have an invitation today. John's Gospel says so clearly to us that salvation is found as we believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Maybe if this is you this morning, I'd encourage you to come and have a chat to Josh. Have a chat to someone that you've come along to, uh, with, uh, to church today or come and have a chat to myself. Why don't we bow our heads and pray together? Father, we do thank you that the jo- for the joyful confidence that we can have as the children of God. Father, for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us this audacious confidence that we really know that because of everything Jesus has done, we are the children of God. Father, for those who perhaps are not sure, I pray that even today they would come and put their trust in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.